Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Job chapter 1. And I want to welcome everyone who is here present on our campus, uh, worshiping the Lord with us and all of those who are watching online and those who will watch via our TV broadcast. Uh, these are strange days and our congregation, our family is scattered, but we're still a family and we're worshiping the Lord together. And our prayer today is that he'll be honored in the songs that we sing and in how we respond to his precious word. Now, the book of Job is an interesting book. It is an unusual book in our book of books, in, in the Bible. Uh, the book of Job is a historical book in that it <clears throat> tells the story of something that really happened at a point in time, at a place uh, and with a person. It's a, it's a real story. Uh, but, but it's also a wisdom book in that the point of the book of Job is not so much what happened to Job, but it is what it tells us about the nature of God. And so today we look in Job chapter 1 and we see a description of some terrible suffering that Job experienced. And so let's just begin reading verse 13. It says, one day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and reported, while the oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing nearby, the Sabaeans swooped down and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And so he gets this terrible news that an enemy has come and the enemy has taken some of his family's wealth and, and killed many of the servants. This is terrible news. But it goes on, verse 16, he was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, God's fire fell from heaven and it burned the sheep and the servants and devoured them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So not only has his family's wealth been destroyed, but his personal wealth just in a heartbeat, that has been destroyed as well. Look at verse 17. That messenger was still speaking when yet another came and reported the Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels and took them away and they struck down the servants with the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. It's just bad news on top of bad news. Look at verse 18. He says, he was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, and it collapsed on the young people so that they died, and I alone have escaped to tell you. The, the news just gets worse and worse and worse. If you, if you shift over to chapter 2, just read one verse there, verse seven. It says, so Satan left the Lord's presence and infected Job with terrible boils from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Job suffered. Job is, is in the midst of the worst calamity that any person can imagine. Everything that was valuable to Job has been taken away from Job. Job is suffering. And I thought perhaps this morning, just in my, in my prayer time this week, that we ought to talk about the suffering of Job because in, in a different sense, but in a real way, we are suffering too. We're in this pandemic. Nobody knows what the next 
few weeks will hold or the next few months will hold. And I know everybody has a strong opinion and I've heard all the opinions and, you know, here in town and on the news and we read about them on the internet, but nobody knows. This is a time, an unprecedented time of suffering. Uh, We have people who are members of our church that are suffering physically because they are positive with the COVID virus. We we, we have people here in our church family who have friends and connections and family members that are, that are struggling with this virus. Uh, we, many of us, we know some of those people who are, who are struggling, even those who are in the hospital. And then there's the financial uh, effects of this, and, and many people are struggling financially. And then there's, there's some of the things that we don't talk about often, like the loneliness that comes from this. And, and, and many of our church members have been separated from well, from their church family, and, and there's, there's much suffering going on today. So what does the Bible have to teach us? What does the Bible have to say about suffering? Well, I want to start here in Job chapter 1, Job chapter 2, but I really want to, I really want to look at the entire Scripture this morning and, and learn what God has to say to both challenge us and encourage us when we go through suffering. Now, the big question that people ask is why? Why is it that people suffer? Why is it that we're going through what we're going through? All kinds of suffering. Why do people get cancer? Why do people die younger than they should? Why do people lose their jobs? Why do kids rebel? Why do we suffer? And the simple answer to that, you know, is sin, right? We suffer because of sin both individual sin, I suffer because of my sin, and then just corporate sin, we live in a sinful world, a fallen, broken world, and so we suffer because of the sin of all the people in the world. We suffer because of sin. If there were no sin, there would be no suffering. And one day, when we are removed from the very presence of sin, we will also be removed from the presence of suffering. We suffer because we sin. But honestly, church, that's not a very satisfying answer. If you talk to somebody who's suffering, if you talk to somebody who's asking why, why has this happened to me? Why has this happened to my family? Why are we going through this? If you just simply say you suffer because of sin, that doesn't satisfy them. That's not, that's not exactly a helpful answer. And it doesn't satisfy because, first of all, it's hard to connect our suffering, most of the time anyway, it's hard to connect our suffering with a specific sin. I mean, if I knew that because I have this sin in my life, this is the consequence, then maybe I could remove this sin and, and remove the consequence. But, but, but the Bible is rarely that specific. And in fact, I think people get in a lot of trouble. Theologically, they get in a lot of trouble when they try to connect one sin with, with one time of suffering. When people say that because America did this, this is what's happening. Because these people did this, a hurricane is coming. Because this person is guilty of this, now they have cancer. We need to be very careful about that. The Bible doesn't do that. We shouldn't try to draw those specific lines. And so... If, if you just answer the question, why do people suffer, by saying it's because of sin, because we can't really be more specific than that, it's just not a very satisfying answer. And so, as a result, people who don't believe in God 
have formulated an argument from that to prove, at least in their minds, that God is not real. And here's the way that argument works. They'll say that Christians claim, Christians claim that God is all-powerful and all-loving. Do we claim that? Does the Bible say that? Well, it does. The critics are right when they say Christians say, Christians believe that God is all-powerful and all-loving. But they'll say that can't be true if there's suffering in the world. Because if there's suffering, the critics will say, then if God is all-powerful and could stop all suffering, then it cannot also be true that he is all-loving or he would stop the suffering. And so they will say the, the biblical description of God cannot describe the real God because if God really were all-powerful and God really loved us, he would stop the suffering. And then they'll turn it around the other way. And they'll say, well, perhaps God is all-powerful and perhaps God could stop the suffering, but in that case, he must not be loving enough. And and the critics would say, either God is not all-powerful and can't stop it, or he is not all-loving and he desires to stop it. The biblical God can't be real. So what do we say to an argument like that? I know many people, critics, are thinking that, are are saying that in these days. How do we respond to an argument where they seemingly have this logic that says the, the, the biblical God can't be real? Now, that, that, that's not going to be the thrust of the message, but let's answer the argument. There are two things you need to know when you hear an argument like this. Two things. The first one is, well, both of them are important, but the first one especially for young people, is the key to, to having a strong faith, especially when you go to college. I remember when I uh, went to college, went to um, uh, a secular college, and I had two professors that really challenged my faith. Uh, they said things in class, and then they said things one-on-one uh, with the intent to shake me away from my faith. And, and they were things that challenged my faith. They, they presented an argument and they asked a question that I just couldn't answer. So how, how, what's the first thing we need to know when we hear one of these uh, difficult to respond to arguments? Well, the first thing you need to know is that just because you don't know the answer doesn't mean there's not an answer. That's what I want my kids to know is I have two of my three children in college now. I I wanted them to know before they left and before they were confronted with those same things that, that, that kids, just because you don't know the answer doesn't mean there's not an answer. So many people, especially young people, walk away from the faith because they get challenged by some critic with some question they can't answer. And And when I was in college, I didn't know the answer, and it shook my faith. And it was tempting just to walk away from from my faith and from Christianity because I couldn't respond. But I know now from a different perspective with a little more education and a little more maturity, hopefully, now I can answer the questions. I would love now to sit back down with those two professors and and, and have them pose those questions again and give me one more chance to to, to respond to those. And, And then perhaps they would have more questions that I couldn't answer. But know this, just because you don't know the answer doesn't mean there's not an answer. Don't abandon your faith because somebody backs you in a corner. Uh, but, but, But how do we answer that 
argument. How, how do we answer that criticism that if God is all powerful and he's all loving, that he would take our suffering away. And if he does it, it either means he's not all powerful or he's not all loving. Well, I, I think the answer is this. It is true that God is all powerful and it is true that God is all loving, but those aren't the only two things that are true of God, right? There are some other things that are true of God. And, and when you know some of these other things, then it, it helps us to understand how God could be all powerful and all loving and there still be suffering. The third thing that is, that is true of God is that he is all wise, right? He has wisdom. He has the fullness of wisdom. And so God understands some things that you and I don't understand sometimes. And just because I don't understand how an all-powerful, all-loving God wouldn't just stop all suffering, God is all-wise. And it shouldn't surprise me that God understands things that I don't understand. I think about when we vaccinate our, our children. Uh, you know, little children don't understand. They don't understand at all those vaccinations. And from their perspective, you just, you just go to a doctor's office and somebody takes a, you know, a long metal pokey thing and, and, and pushes it in you and it, and it hurts and it's bad. And, and from the perspective of that little child, there's no good reason for that. I wasn't sick. I don't, I don't understand. Why are they doing this? Well, as parents and certainly the medical professionals, they have some more wisdom and they understand that while the child may not have the ability to understand, this is a good thing. And so when we suffer, God's all-powerful, and, and he is certainly good and loves us, but he's also wise. And there are some reasons that are beyond our understanding. And then the fourth thing you need to know about the Lord that helps to explain away this objection to Christianity is that God is just. God is just. And because he is just, every sin must be paid for. God is the perfect judge. He will not ignore a sin. He will not relent from, from punishment. Every sin, God will not compromise. Every sin must be paid for. Now as Christians, we know that Jesus has stepped forward to pay for our sins on the cross. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But, 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 but we, we, we've got to understand that no sin can be ignored. No sin will be ignored by God because God is perfectly just. And so you see the critics have a pretty good argument. If all you knew about God is that he is all loving and that he is, that he is good, then you have a hard time really understanding how there could be suffering. But when you add the third piece that he is all wise and there are things we don't understand and you add the fourth piece that he is just and every sin must be paid for, then it puts things in a very, very different light. Uh, listen to how Jesus handled that question uh, in, in Luke chapter 13, uh, the scripture says there were some present at that very time who told him, who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices uh, and he answered them. So some people come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, essentially, why is there suffering? They said, we know of some Galileans and they got caught in the crossfire of, of some violent act and they weren't a part of it. They were innocent and they, they were killed in the crossfire. Jesus, why is there suffering? And here's how Jesus responded. Do you think that these 
Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? So he starts with a question. Do you really, do you think the reason they suffered is because they deserved it in some special way? See, there's this tendency to connect sin with suffering and draw a straight line between the two. And we can't do that. So he says, do you think that they died because they were worse sinners? No. He says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He said, the amazing question is not why did, the, why did those people die? The amazing question is why didn't everybody die? Because everybody deserves to die. God is perfectly just. So why is it that people suffer? Uh, we, we see these biblical answers and, and even sort of a philosophical answer here. But this doesn't help. When, when somebody comes to me as a pastor and says, I don't know why I'm going through this, uh, you know, to sit down and talk to them about the apologetics of the faith and to talk about, uh, well, God is perfect, but he's, he's, he's just and he's loving and, and you put these things together. What people are really asking, what people are really asking is not why am I suffering, but how do I respond to suffering? And that's really the question that the Bible answers. That, that, that's how the Bible approaches this. Not, not just why are we suffering, but how, how should we suffer? How should we respond when we suffer? So let's take a few minutes and from Scripture, let me show you how uh, to deal with suffering, how to handle the suffering that we face. Number one, we should focus on faith. We should see our suffering as a tool that God has provided for us to grow stronger in our faith and to have a greater connection with God. So when we suffer, we have an opportunity to grow, to have, a, to, to have greater assurance. Let, let me tell you two ways that, that suffering can increase our faith. Number one, it gives assurance of our salvation. Uh, everybody at times in their life, they struggle with knowing for certain that they are a child of God. How can I have an assurance of my faith? Well, listen to what the Bible says. First Peter one says, rejoice though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So he says, rejoice, have joy, even though you're suffering because you know, I've lost myself here. So that, the test, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. He says that when we suffer and we hold tight to the Lord, it will increase our uh, assurance because, because the greatest sign that you are genuinely a Christian is that your faith last, that your faith perseveres. And so how can somebody have greater assurance that they're a child of God? Well, when you go through this time of suffering and instead of running from God, you hold tight to God, it increases your faith. It increases your assurance. The second way it increases your faith when you go through times of suffering is it provides for maturity and strength. Listen to this. James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So when you suffer, count it joy. For, here's why, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete 
lacking in nothing. You know, if a person is going to get stronger physically, you can't just lay on the couch all day, right? You can't just be sedentary. If you want to get stronger physically, you have to move. You have to exercise. You have to put your body under some strain, and that will help you to be stronger physically. Well, here he says the same thing is true with our spirits. It's when we go through difficulty, it is when we go through suffering that, that we're stronger and that our faith grows. Do you know why ordinarily the most mature, the most faith-filled people in a church are the widow ladies? You know why that is? Why do they seem to have a stronger faith than the rest of us? Why does it seem like they have a greater prayer life than the rest of us? Why, why does it seem that you know, they just have more, more joy than the rest of us? Well, it's because those are the people generally in a church who have suffered more than other people. They've, by definition, lost their husband or maybe lost their wife, and, and that's such a difficult time. But those people that go through those times holding tightly to the Lord, they come out the other end with a stronger faith and a greater prayer life and, and deeper joy. And so how do we handle suffering? The first thing we should do is focus on our faith. The next thing we should do is to focus on heaven. When life gets hard, when we suffer, our focus should be on heaven. If you think about it, the way we handle almost everything in life, everything that's difficult in life, is we, we handle it by making a comparison. Uh, so exercise. Now some of you love to exercise, and that's great. But for many people, exercise is, is no fun, it's a chore, it's difficult, it's a waste of time. So why, why do you exercise? Why does a person go through the difficulty of exercising? Well, because you make a comparison. You've got the difficulty of exercise on one hand, but then you have the benefits on the other hand, that you're going to feel better, that you're going to be healthier, you're going to be able to do more. And so you make a comparison and you decide that the benefits are greater than the burden, and so you exercise. Why does a person exercise? Because you've made a comparison. Think about going on vacation. And not as many vacations this summer as usual, but, but think about the last driving vacation you went on. And maybe you got in the car and you drove six hours or 10 hours or 12 hours. Who enjoys being in a car for 12 hours? So why do we endure the suffering of being in a car for that many hours? Why would somebody do that? You wouldn't just sign up to drive six hours one way and turn around and drive six hours back. That would be misery. So why do we give our time? Why do we suffer through these long car trips? Well, because we make a comparison and we think here's the suffering of being in the car for 10 or 12 hours, but here's the joys of being on the beach for a week. And so we decide that the joy outweighs the burden. And so we, we go on our vacation. Everything we Everything we decide in life is a comparison. Well, when we suffer, when we're suffering because of the pandemic or some other thing, we should extend that comparison from the temporary to the eternal. We ought to think not just how things are today, but we ought to think about what is going to be the result tomorrow. So if you're going on a vacation and all you focus on is the misery of the car trip and you don't think about the, uh, where you're going to arrive and the things that are going to happen there and the joy that's going to come on vacation, you just focus on the car. You'll be miserable on the journey. 
Well, in life, we need to, we need to extend our focus. So many people just focus on the trouble. Woe is me. Life is hard. This isn't fair. Why is this happening? And we don't focus on the destination. We don't look to heaven. And so it becomes, it becomes unbearable. Uh, l- listen to how Jesus says it. When people are persecuting you, rejoice because you have a heavenly reward. He says, when you're going through hard times, rejoice. Why? Because he's promised you, Matthew 5, 11, a heavenly reward. Peter wrote to people who were suffering in the book of 1 Peter, and he says, uh, you have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading reward waiting for you in heaven. That's what your focus should be on. But listen to what the apostle Paul says. I think he says it best. Romans 8.18, Paul wrote, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He says, I made a comparison. I made a comparison. And I'm suffering, but the glories of heaven are so much greater than the suffering I'm experiencing that it is worth it. What would those in heaven say to those on earth who are suffering? They would say, hold on, it's worth it. I heard a pastor one time tell a, tell a story, a made-up story, an illustration, but, it, but he told a story about a man years and years ago who had received a great inheritance. He was a, he was a poor man, and he never really had anything until he received this great inheritance of this mansion in New York City. And it came with all the, all the other pieces. It came with the servants and the food. And, and, and he had received this inheritance. So he got on a wagon and he traveled all the way across the country on this wagon. But he got about 100 yards from the mansion, 100 yards from his, from his inheritance. And the wagon broke down. And he was angry that the wagon is broken down. So he turned around and he went back home. You see, so often we get so focused on the journey, we forget the destination. It's the destination that'll keep us going uh, in the the journey. And so we need to focus on our faith. We need to focus on heaven. Number three, we need to focus on ministry to other people. One of the reasons why God allows us to suffer is to qualify us to minister to somebody else. When you suffer, what, what you should understand about yourself is that, is that you're going to school and, and you, are, you are becoming able, you are becoming qualified now to minister to somebody else who will be going through similar, similar problems. I was counseling a, a young couple in our church here just recently. I'm sure watching, our, um, watching and worshiping with us right now. And they're just going through a hard time. And, and, and the wife said to me in the middle of the counseling, she said, with a smile on her face and a very, very difficult hour, she, she said, I know that one day I'm going to be able to help another young lady go through what I'm going through. And I thought, you know, that's the perfect attitude. That's right. God is qualifying you to minister to people. Listen to how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. So God comforts us. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction 
with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. He says, when you go through a tough time and you hold tightly to the Lord, God will one day allow you to help somebody else who's going through a tough time. You'll be able to connect them with the comfort of God because you've experienced the comfort of God. When we, when we suffer, we should focus on ministering to others. You know, we, we do that really for more than one reason. For one, it is true that God is qualifying us to minister to somebody else. But another thing that I, I didn't really plan to say, but I think it's just as important, uh, th there is a joy. Listen, church, there is a peace that can only be known when you're serving other people, when you're ministering to other people. You know, in this, in this day we live in, people look to all kinds of things to bring joy and peace in their lives. We, we look to all kinds of medications. We, uh, we, we look to all kinds of entertainment and amusement. And, and I suppose all of that has some value. But there is a joy that you will never experience as long as you're focused on yourself. There is a joy you'll never experience. No medication, no entertainment, no amusement. There is a joy you will not experience unless you're sacrificing and serving other, other people. That's how God has wired us up. Jesus came to serve, and he shows us that God has created us to serve. I am probably shared this illustration with you. I, I've worn it out through the years, but I, I like to tell the story uh, because, uh, because it's just so true. It's just such a helpful reminder. There was a, there was a, a woman in a church, and she, uh, she was struggling with, with depression and discouragement and, and, and just bitterness, and, and life was hard for her. But, but she went to see a counselor, and counselors are good things, and, and, and she, it was time for her to go see her counselor, but she didn't have a ride. The counselor was in the big city. She lived out away from things. And, and so she called her pastor. And she said, Pastor, I just wonder if you're going to the big city this week. Because I really need to go see my counselor and I don't have a ride. And, and if you were going to the big city, you and your wife, if you were going to the big city this week, I'd love to ride with you. And, 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 and that's how I could see my counselor. And he said, you know, in fact, in fact, we are. Tomorrow we're going to the big city. And you're welcome to ride with us. We will take you to your counselor. But you just got to know that we're going to make some stops along the way. There's just a lot of things we've got to do. And she said, well, that's fine. And so they... They pick her up in the car the next day and, and, and they get just a little ways down the road. They stop at a hospital and they visit five or six people in the hospital. And, and this lady just goes in with the pastor and his wife and, and she's a part of that. And she holds people's hands and she encourages them and she prays for them and she just ministers to them in the hospital. And, and, and so then they all get back in the car and they go a little ways further and they stop at an assisted living facility. And there's another half dozen people or so the pastor needs to see it. She comes along with them and she does the same thing. She ministers to them and she loves on them and prays with them. And so they make several of those stops. And then finally, she is just, She's just bubbling over with joy. She finally gets to the counselor's office and she sits down and she says, you won't believe what an incredible day I've had. And she told the story. We went this place and this place and I held this lady's hand and I prayed with this man and I did this and did that and it's just been wonderful. And the counselor said, great, we have found the remedy to your depression and your discouragement. And she said, you don't expect me to do that every day, do you? So, so there is a joy. When, when, when we suffer, there's a tendency just to turn inward and to focus on us 
and to focus on how unfair life is and how hard life is. But when we do that, we, we add to the problem and the pain because there's a joy that can only be experienced when we're serving other people. And when I talk to people and counsel with people, and, I, and I'm not a good counselor with, with this, but, but, but one of the questions I will, I will ask when somebody comes and says they're depressed and they're discouraged and, and, and life is just hard, I'll say, well, who are you serving? Where are you sacrificing? How are you giving your time to somebody? And almost without exception, they say that they are not. And almost without exception, when they do, they find a joy. may not cure every problem you have, but they find a joy and they find a hope that they didn't know otherwise. When we suffer, we should focus on our faith. We can grow. We should focus on heaven. That comparison makes it worth it. And we should focus on ministry to others. Finally, we should focus on the glory of God. Most of the time we see suffering through a very self-centered perspective. When, when you hear people complain, you know, our hearts betray, uh, our, our complaining betrays our hearts when you hear people complain about, woe is me, and this is how hard this is, and I don't have any money, and I don't feel good, and, I, and, and this problem and that problem, we're, we're, we're admitting that our lives revolve around us. But our lives, listen, church, are not primarily about our personal happiness. Uh, that's the perspective of a lost person. But as Christians, what should life revolve around? Our lives should revolve around the glory of God. That's what's most important. Not how do I feel, not how much money do I have, not how secure is my job, not how healthy is my family. None of those things are unimportant, but my life should revolve around the glory of God, not the, not the comfort of, of my family. Let me share this with you in Scripture uh, Jesus encountered a blind man. This is an interesting story. John chapter 9, it says, As he passed by, he saw a, a, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, they asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, there's some more people trying to connect some suffering to a specific sin. And so they asked Jesus, and Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He was blind so that Jesus could heal him and that people would see the power and the love of, of God. Jesus was saying, it's not about us, but life is about the glory of God. I think about the apostle Paul. I, I love to read about his thorn. So the Bible says the apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh. And we don't know exactly what that was, but, but it was some kind of suffering. And the Bible talks about how he handles the suffering. Paul had the right perspective every time he suffered. In fact, that was one of the reasons why people had such a hard time dealing with Paul. Uh, if you threatened to throw Paul in jail, what would he say? Great, that'll give me some more people I can share the gospel with. And I'll lead the whole jailhouse to Christ. So you would threaten to torture Paul. What would he say? That's fine. The sufferings of this world are not worthy to compare with the, with the hope of, of heaven. If you threaten to kill him, what would Paul say? Fine. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Paul had the right perspective. But we see this most clearly in his wrestling with this special kind of suffering that he called his thorn. Let me just read the passage to you. 
2 Corinthians chapter 12, if you want to look this up later, it says, three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need, for my power works best in weakness. Now, before we just amen that, let's think about it. That, that doesn't make sense. God said, Paul, you don't, you don't need the suffering to go away. What you need is to, is to be weak and to experience my power. Does that make sense to you? But he goes on to explain it. Paul says, so now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weakness and insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, what, what he learned is that, is, is that when he was weak, when Paul was, was hurting, when Paul was desperate, he would lean on God. He would pray more. He would depend upon the provision of God. He would prevent, depend upon God giving him the words. He would depend upon God helping him through the day. And, and so when Paul was weak, he found strength in Christ. Does that make sense? When we think we're strong and we don't need any help and I don't need to pray and I got plenty of health and plenty of strength and plenty of money and plenty of security and my, my, my family's just fine. And, and when we get, we get this confidence because life is so easy, we don't lean on the Lord. But when life is hard, we, we do because we understand then that the most important thing is the, is the glory of God and that brings us strength. Then I think about Stephen. You know the story of Stephen stoned, stoned to death. They threw rocks at him until he died because he said Christ has risen. And we read about it in Acts chapter 7. It says, he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And falling, out, uh, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. How was Stephen able to have such a good attitude in the middle of being stoned to death? Because he knew that God was going to be glorified. And Stephen's life was not about him. Stephen's life was about the glory of God and suffering. The suffering Stephen went through gave him an opportunity to bring honor and glory to God. So when we suffer, we ought to be thinking about the fact that one day we will be sitting in heaven, maybe around a, a campfire and and there will be Stephen, and there will be Paul, and Stephen will give a testimony about, about how he was stoned to death, but, but even in that, that he was able to bring glory to God. And, and Paul will finally tell us what the thorn was, and, and we'll say, wow, that's terrible. And he'll say, it's not terrible, because through that I was able to bring glory to God. And then people will look to you. And you're going to have a story to tell. There was a time when this happened. There was a time when life was hard. There was a time when I didn't know what the future would hold. But I held tightly to the Lord. And this is how God was glorified. See, if, when we suffer, we ought to focus on the glory of God. That's the purpose of, of our suffering. Well, if you look back to Job chapter 1, I do want to read a couple more verses we left off at the end of verse 19. Look at verse 20. It says, Then Job stood up, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground, and he worshiped. That's interesting, right? He didn't complain. He didn't gripe. He worshiped. 
And he said this, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There are going to be good days, he says, and there are going to be bad days. But the one constant, blessed be the name of the Lord. And then look at, uh, look at verse 22. It says, throughout all of this, Job did not sin and did not blame God for anything. It grew his faith. He focused on eternal life. He ministered to others. And he made it all about the glory of God. But I do want you to see one more thing here. You know, we're Jesus people. And so when we read these texts in Scripture, we ought to ask ourselves, how does this, what does this tell us about, about Christ? Well, we know that we suffer because of sin. Both specific sin, my sin, and corporate sin, our sin. We suffer because of sin. But our suffering is not the ultimate suffering, right? Who is the person who ultimately suffered for our sin? Who is the person who ultimately paid for our sin? Jesus, Jesus. There is a difference between getting hit by the shadow of a bus or getting hit by a bus. You know the difference? There's a difference between, between standing on the sidewalk and the shadow of the bus comes by. There's a difference between that and standing in the street and the bus comes by and and runs you over. There's a difference. Well, when I suffer, and all of us suffer, I need to remember that what I'm experiencing is but a faint shadow of the consequences of sin. When I suffer, health, relationships, coronavirus, when I suffer, I should remember that that difficulty is just the shadow of the consequences of sin. My Lord and Savior, he suffered the ultimate consequence. He gave his life to suffer and to die for our sins. And so our suffering ought to cause us to thank and glorify and honor the Lord because of his great love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're, it's, it's hard not to get selfish when we go through hard times. It's, it's hard not to just look inward and say, woe is me, and complain and gripe, and it's not fair. And that's because we're sinners. That's what we do. We, we look inward. And I know a lot of people today are suffering, some because of the coronavirus in some way or its effects, and some just suffering. I pray that you remind every suffering person, here's my voice, that they should turn to you and hold tightly to you. And though they're suffering, their faith can be strengthened and renewed. They can have joy as they minister to others. And they have a new and a fresh opportunity to bring glory to you. Father, I pray that in the times of suffering, we will be most faithful and that you will be most honored. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.